it's something that everybody wants, but so few of us find it. Happiness. American poet Amy Lowell wrote, happiness, we rarely feel it. I would buy it, beg it, steal it, pay in coins of dripping blood for this one transcendent good. And we try to find happiness in so many things, right? We try to find happiness in pleasure. I mean, because pleasure feels good. It makes us feel happy. A, a rush of endorphins is released from the hypothalamus. They latch onto receptors in the nervous system and everything feels fine. But it lasts only a moment. It's over in a flash. And nothing we try makes it last, right? Sex doesn't do it. Accomplishment doesn't work. My favorite foods, they're fun to eat, but they make me fat. And so there goes the pleasure. Drugs can give you such an ecstatic high, but they steal everything when you aren't looking. Pleasure is fleeting. Enjoy it while it lasts because it never does. And so we think, well, maybe happiness is found in wealth. If we just had enough money and possessions. I mean, nothing makes you feel as good as a wad of cash, a big fat number in the account. If, if I could just be set for life, then I could be happy. You ever thought that? I mean, I could buy what I want, do what I want, go where I want, whenever I want. But if this were true, wouldn't Beverly Hills be the happiest place on earth? But it isn't, right? The only thing that uh, Beverly Hills leads the nation is is psychiatrists and psychoactive drugs. So if it's not pleasure and it's not wealth, then maybe happiness is to be found in fame, popularity. The applause of people could somehow give my life meaning if I could just have a million followers, if it was my picture on the back of the bestseller, um, it was my song that people sang along to as they drove in their car, well, then my life would be fulfilled. Or would it? You see, the applause always fades. Cheers inevitably turn into jeers, and today's bestseller or number one hit is tomorrow's yard sale fodder for 50 cents. Then we think, well, maybe if I had power, influence might be the key to happiness. Just imagine people listening to my every word. My, my thoughts carry weight. Trends, fads, and fashions hinge on what I say and what I do, or stock markets, you know, prices rising and falling based on what I buy and sell. Right? Everyone wants my opinion. Everyone asks, well, what does Dan have to say? See, that's the problem with happiness. Happiness is all based on happenings, circumstances beyond our control. And should my fulfillment in life be dependent on things that I can do very little about, or maybe happiness just is a mirage in the desert of life. It, it, it's an illusion that doesn't really exist. Or are we missing something here? Well, in the opening verses of Matthew 5, we see Jesus offering us something more, right? something beyond happiness, something better. 
because God promises promises not just mere happiness, but blessing. And Jesus says that there are eight steps, eight mile markers on the path to blessing. And for hundreds of years, Christians have simply called these eight proclamations of blessing the Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitude simply means a state of blessedness, uh, being blessed, living in a state of blessing. Uh, But you could also look at them as, well, be attitudes, right? Attitudes that you should have, the attitudes you should demonstrate in life. But the word that Jesus uses here for blessing means to be fully satisfied. And so Jesus isn't just describing how people feel. He's describing what God does for you. These aren't just favorable circumstances, but divine favor. Jesus isn't promising us a fleeting sensation, but he is showing us the way to lasting joy. It's what Max Licato calls sacred delight. And I I love that description. And sacred delight is what our Savior offers. And this sacred delight is not offered to to whom you might expect, but, but a sorry group of losers. I mean, we look at at whom Jesus promises blessing to here, and we think happiness, blessing is promised to them? Yes. And this blessing is discovered in the most unlikely of places. But before we dive in, let let me set the scene for you. Jesus has been traveling throughout the northern regions of of Galilee, uh, where he grew up, and he's been teaching, he's been performing miracles, And word about him has been spreading, right? The crowds are getting people, people are showing up to hear what he has to say and probably more so to see what he's going to do. And a lot of people are seeking their own miracle, their, their own change. But people are coming out to see this rabbi they've heard so much about. And on one of these occasions uh, near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees all these people, and he sees an opportunity to teach them. So he, he finds a place kind of high up uh, near the shore, and he goes up there because his voice will carry over the crowds, and he sits down. In those days, teachers sat down to teach, and the, the, the audience stood up. Um, but the Beatitudes begin the most famous series of teachings of Jesus in all of the Bible. It's simply called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the lengthiest of Jesus' teachings that we have. It fills Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, and yet the whole thing can be comfortably read in less than 15 minutes. But in these three chapters, Jesus sets forth a bold and daring vision for a new way to be human. It's a charter for what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't merely about what Jesus wants us to do. It's who he calls us to be. And Jesus gets to the very core of our being, right? Our influence, our attitude, our our motivation, our ambition, our commitment. But the place he begins is with our character. Now, as we go through these Beatitudes, a, a couple of things I need you to understand. First of all, Jesus isn't 
blessing different groups of people here. Over here is the poor in spirit, and, and over there you have the meek, and, and right there are the merciful, and Jesus is blessing these different groups. No, rather these are the defining qualities of anyone who would follow after Jesus. These are qualities that all of us as Christians should have. Secondly, these aren't eight different paths to blessing, as if you could find God's blessing by well, be being poor in spirit or hungering and thirsting for righteousness or being a peacemaker. Right? These aren't various routes to the same destination. It's not multiple choice. Rather, these are all mile markers on the same road to blessing. They're, they're interrelated. They're interconnected. Each one opens to the next, and it builds on the one before. And so I want to, to look at each of these mile markers down the path to blessing. And the path to divine blessing begins, well, in the unlikeliest of places. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, poor and blessing, they just don't seem to belong in the same sentence. And the word that Jesus uses for poor here means to, to shrink, to cower, to cringe. A word they most commonly used to refer to a beggar. Just imagine the, the, the past posture, the body language of a beggar, and you get the idea for this, this word. This isn't just somebody who's struggling to make ends meet. They're not just living paycheck to paycheck, but this is someone utterly destitute. They have absolutely nothing. But this isn't an economic statement. Jesus isn't talking about personal finances or fiscal policy or Wall Street. This is an audit of our spiritual condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about spiritual poverty. Someone who is poor in spirit is someone who knows that they are a sinner that they fall far short of God's glory. The spiritually poor person stands before God with empty pockets, realizing they have nothing, and, and there's nothing they can do to earn or deserve God's blessing. But Jesus comes along and says, the person who recognizes this sorry state of affairs hasn't missed out on God's blessing, but actually finds God's blessing. What? How can that be, Jesus? You can't be serious. Maybe you've been walking out in the hot sun too long. How can a person spiritually impoverished that has nothing to stand before God be blessed by God? Well, because the moment that we realize that there's nothing we can do to fix the problem ourselves, that's the moment we can look to someone who can. And when we finally throw ourselves on the grace of God, that's when we are truly blessed. Augustus' top lady captured poor in spirit perfectly in his great hymn, Rock of Ages. The third verse of this classic hymn goes, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress." Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Helpless look to thee for grace. This 
truth flies in the face of our culture, which says, you're okay on your own. Just look inside yourself. Rely on your own inner strength. Look to the truth and the light within you. The world's me attitudes would begin with happy are the self-assured who feel good about themselves, for theirs is this world. But Jesus says, no, it's the spiritually impoverished who are truly blessed. And it is only to such people that Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven isn't a kingdom you build for yourself. It isn't a personal achievement. The blessing of salvation is a gift that is given. It is wholly undeserved, and it can only be received with the dependent humility of a little child. And that kind of fullness and blessing begins with an admission of spiritual emptiness. Have you realized your emptiness before God? Are you still trying to do it on your own? Have you openly and fully confessed to God, Lord, I am spiritually bankrupt. I can do nothing. I've got nothing without you. You see, the path to blessing begins there. The door to sacred delight is opened by declaring our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, as we continue down the road of blessing, the next mile marker seems almost well, more paradoxical than the first. Here's what Jesus says. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <laughs> it's almost as if Jesus is saying, happy are the unhappy, happy are the sad. How can that be? How can mourning and blessing go together? Well, the first beatitude is being poor in spirit, and that is to realize that we have nothing before God. But once we realize this, right, once we know that we have nothing before God, what's our response to that? Right? What does that make us feel? You see, mourning springs naturally from being poor in spirit. Realizing our spiritual poverty should cause within us a deep-seated sorrow to be broken. That's a word we often use to describe this, this sensation. It isn't just feeling sorry for ourselves, bemoaning our fate, oh, woe is me, but it is an intense, deep, heartfelt experience of brokenness, of coming undone before God. That's something that, that the prophet Isaiah said when he saw God high and lifted up on his throne. He says, I am undone. I'm coming to pieces. Our sinfulness troubles us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually to the core of our soul. You see, it's one thing to be spiritually bankrupt, all right? To, 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 to know you have nothing before God and to acknowledge it but then it's another step to grieve and to mourn over that fact, to be broken by it. Because there are plenty of people who, who know they're sinners, but then they don't care about it. They don't do anything about it. And so to mourn is to be filled with a godly sorrow that grieves over the state of our nothingness before God, 
to grieve and mourn over the state of our relationship with God. I think King David exemplifies this personal brokenness so well in Psalm 51. This is the psalm he wrote after he was caught in his sin with Bathsheba. But he didn't try to hide his crime. He didn't try to cover it up. I mean, he did it first, but once he was confronted, he, he fully lays himself bare before God. And here's how he opens this psalm. And remember, this is a song. This was a song that, that all of Israel would have sung. So it becomes a, a, a song of confession for a whole nation. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak. You are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in, my, in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. We are far too comfortable with sin. We make excuses for sin. We tolerate sin. We define it as something else. Today, we even celebrate it. We take pride in it. I'm not just talking about our culture. It's a problem in the church. It's a problem in our lives. And we act too much like sin doesn't matter. But it does matter. And it matters greatly. When we begin to see our sinfulness, the way that God does, well, then we're one step closer to blessing. To those who are broken and mournful over their sin, God promises comfort. And it's ultimately the only comfort that can heal their hearts. On our own, the best we can hope is to, to cover up our sorrows, to disguise them, uh, to distract ourselves for a moment. But God blesses those who mourn with real comfort. And this is a comfort that is more than just a hand on the shoulder, more than just a few words of consolation or well wishes. It is something very real that transforms us to the very core of our hearts. Only the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3, can turn wailing into dancing, Psalm 30.11. Only he can bind up the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61.1. And ultimately, only God's comfort can wipe away every tear in our eye, Revelation 7.17. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, as we continue down the road of blessing, uh, the third mile marker, the third beatitude is this. Blessed are the meek. And again, this runs contrary to every grain of our culture. Because the world says, happy are the self-assertive. Happy are the confident. Happy are those who go after what they want. Happy are the forceful, the manipulators, the powerful. But no, Jesus says, blessed 
are the meek. Well, what does it mean to be meek? Meekness is not something we understand very well. It's not a word we use very often. And I think in the minds of many, meek equals weak. It is to be shy and unassertive. It means to have a quiet manner. And if you see meekness in this way, we have completely missed our Savior's heart here. A meek is to be gentle and considerate and mild, but it isn't to be powerless. It is rather to keep your power under control, to use your power discreetly, to direct it carefully. A trained horse that is bridled and saddled has great power, but it's power that is contained and controlled. That is meekness. A fire in a fireplace. It has the power to warm, to illuminate, to comfort and protect. But it's power under control. That's meekness. So how does this apply to, to this beatitude, to this, this blessing? Well, to this point, the beatitudes have dealt with how we view ourselves in the presence of God. But I think with this third beatitude, we see how we view ourselves in the presence of others. If we are spiritually impoverished, we're spiritually bankrupt, and we're truly mournful over that condition, those are the first two mile markers, that's not just going to change how we view ourselves before God, it's going to change how we view ourselves before others. Because of our spiritual brokenness before God, I know that I'm no better than anyone else. That means I shouldn't act as though I'm any better than anyone else. And so meekness is, is a humble, gentle attitude toward others that springs from a right understanding of our spiritual condition. Meekness refuses to assert the power of self over others because it realizes that we're all in the same spiritual boat. And so imagine a COVID ICU where one patient weekly pulls his mask off, turns to his neighbor and says, you deserve to be here, but I don't. That's the problem of self-righteousness. Too often we insist on our own way. We demand our rights. We clamor for attention. We force our way on others. But meekness realizes that we're no more deserving than the next person. Meekness realizes that, well, I need the grace of God just as much as you. And to such people, Jesus promises that they will inherit the earth. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus ever read the news? I mean, it seems like the earth is inherited by those who forcefully take for themselves. How will the meek ever inherit anything? Well, first, understand this is not a mandate. These are not marching orders for us to go out and conquer the world. Right? That defeats the whole idea of meekness. The inheritance Jesus promises here isn't taken. It is given. And though the forceful and the powerful dominate now, a day is coming where they will not. Eternity does not belong to the Vladimir Putins of the world. Psalm 37 looks forward to this day. And let me highlight just some of these verses, beginning with, with Psalm 37, verse 1. 
do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. You ever do that? I have. For like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. And then going on down to verse 9. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord, here it is, will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy a great peace. It's talking here about the new heaven and the new earth, right? And they will be inherited by those who receive the blessing of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 37, verse uh, 29 goes on to promise, uh, show us that this promise is all about eternity, more than the here and the now. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Well, this is an echo uh, of this promise here in the Beatitudes. And it's a promise not fulfilled in the here and now. It is fulfilled in the words of Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so this is how the meek will inherit the earth. So, once we realize our spiritual poverty, and once we mourn the, the poverty of our soul, and we realize not only do we have nothing before God, but, but we've got nothing on anyone else, that all leads us to the place we really need to be, which brings us to our fourth mile marker down the road to blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We crave a right relationship with God and the transformation of our lives. We realize that we've got no hope unless God gives it to us, and we long for that hope. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But we desire that only which God can give. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness isn't just to have a taste for something. This isn't like when you're watching TV and suddenly you get a hankering for potato chips. You think, man, some ruffles sound good right now. No, the hungering and thirsting that Jesus talks about here is a desperate craving. This is the need of a starving soul. Spiritual deserts parched for living water. If you look at these first four Beatitudes together, you realize that they really describe the process of somebody coming to Jesus. They describe the journey of salvation. And everyone who, who would know Jesus as their Savior will have to travel this path. But it's a path we travel not just once. I think it's a cycle that repeats in the Christian life. And as we grow in faith, we're going to see new things that God wants to do. The, the Holy Spirit will uncover new areas of sinfulness in our life where God wants to begin working. And so again, we will be poor in spirit. We will mourn anew. We will remember once again our meekness. We will hunger and thirst for righteousness again. 
And when we crave this righteousness, Jesus gives us this promise. We will be filled. There's an inside joke, Teresa, and I have based on a on a comedy thing that we saw years ago, comedian was talking about, you ever gone to your refrigerator in the middle of the night and eat your way through it? And, and she's like, nope, not the giant cheese ball I'm looking for. And, and you ever done that? You know, you, you eat your way through, whether it's a giant cheese ball or a bag of chips or a carton of ice cream, and, and you crave it, you need it. But afterwards you realize, no, that, didn't really satisfy. But Jesus is promising satisfaction here. He says we will be filled, not the passing fullness of a chocolate bar, not the fleeting happiness of pleasure, not the momentary boost of ego or applause, but eternal satisfaction. And we don't have to wait for eternity for this filling to begin. It begins now, and it begins in a number of ways. Ephesians 5.18, God fills us with his own Holy Spirit. All right, we can be filled, according to 1 Peter 1.8, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We can be filled with the fruit of righteousness, Philippians 1.11. And according to Ephesians 3.19, we can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I want it. Clarence Jordan, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, talks about how we can better appreciate Jesus' wisdom here if we apply his reasoning to other areas of life. So instead of thinking about entering the kingdom, apply these blessings to education. I mean, let's tell you what I mean. Blessed are those who are ignorant and know it, for theirs is learning. Blessed are those who wish they were not ignorant, for they are on the path to knowledge. Blessed are those who enroll in school, for they shall be taught. Blessed are those who submit to the teacher, for they shall inherit wisdom. Or compare it to health and wellness. Blessed are those who own up, face up to their illness, for theirs is health. Blessed are those who go to the doctor, for they will be helped. Blessed are those who follow the doctor's instructions, for they are in the path to healing. Blessed are those who take their medicine as prescribed, for they will be healthy. So just as education begins in ignorance and health begins in illness, so God's blessing begins where there is no blessing. Now, I don't care where you are in life, where you are on this path to blessing, blessing may feel like the furthest thing from you. And you may think there is no way that you could ever find blessing in your life. But God's path to blessing begins right there, right where you are. And to get on that path of blessing, it's a step that anyone can take, even you. All you need to do is realize where you are. And looked at God and said, God, I've got nothing. I'm spiritually bankrupt. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've already made that step, you're already well on your way down the path of blessing. If you haven't made that step yet, maybe that begins right now in your life.
Thank you. And truly, God bless.